We'll be in John 8 in our Bibles tonight. And uh, we'll begin there in verse 12. This is our second part of our Buddhism talk. I'll go ahead and read John chapter 8, verse 12, and a few verses following. The Bible said, again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Verse 17, in your law it is written, and the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And notice several things that stand out from just this short passage. Jesus says, if you follow me, your life will not be in the what? What's he said? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in what? Darkness, but will have the light of life. I want that, mind, that, that concept to stick in your mind as we go through these aspects of Buddhism tonight that acknowledges no God. In fact, a lot of people have said that Buddhism is more of a philosophy than it is a religion. And I just want to tell you all, I think we've already had church tonight just through the prayer time. Thank you all for that. That ministered to my heart and my soul. Now, in order, I think, for us to have a, a gospel heart and a gospel mentality, imagine all of the concerns and the needs that were just brought in this room to this family of faith. If no God was there to hear your prayers, if no ultimate, all-powerful, holy, loving God existed, then all of that would have just been an exercise in futility. But Jesus says that He came to give light. We gave light to help us know what we are and then who God is. Not only that, but Jesus connects Himself to the Father. He's saying, I'm not just a guy who showed up on the scene with new ideas. I'm not some revolutionary. But God is my Father and I'm His Son. He says there in verse number 17, and that the testimony of two people is True. Now notice he ties together uh, in verse number 19 that if you know the Father, you know Jesus. And if you know Jesus, you know the Father. So when we talk to Buddhists, and kind of like we mentioned on Sunday, in Franklin County, we don't have a ton of Buddhists, right? I mean, I've, I've not noticed, David, I'm sure there's, there's more of a contingent with that in, in Roanoke, because that's larger area. But when we talk to Buddhists, when we talk to Hindus, when we talk to any philosophy or religion that does not understand the truth of the gospel, we can bring them to Jesus. Because here's something that my small mind is realizing more and more, that Jesus answers the great questions of existence. Jesus answers the question, where did I come from? 
Who am I? Where am I going when I die? How should I live while I'm here? And so if we can just bring people to the feet of Jesus, we can see how he fits all of those questions that their philosophy and religion doesn't even answer. So that's why our driving thought here uh, for the second week in a row is that it's very simple. Jesus Christ offers something greater than nirvana. Now, for some of us that have been in an evangelical Baptist context, we're kind of like, and... Alright, that's Captain Obvious. But here's, here's the reason why we're doing this study. It's so when we come into contact with people like that, that we'll be able to give them something that will open them up to the gospel. And we've always talked about, I guess there's certain ways that we can turn people off, certain ways that we can turn people uh, onto the gospel. There are certain ty- things that we can do that I think in Christianity... We say that people don't want to believe in Jesus, but it's not that they don't want to believe in Jesus. They don't want to have the rude, caustic, abrasive personalities that we do. And if you've ever known a Buddhist, uh, most of them are very calm, placid, uh, seemingly kind people. That's nothing compared to Jesus, but I'm saying that this may be a good little phrase to memorize here, that Jesus Christ offers something far greater uh, than nirvana. So here's just a few facts we're going to walk through with Jesus compared to Buddha, and it should be in your outline. And if you guys noticed, we have a two-page outline because Mary helped me with it. So that means that we're, we've got a lot, of, a lot of stuff to cover. So number one of the difference is that Jesus was a strict monotheist and a Gautama. So if you weren't here last week, there's a guy named Siddhartha Gautama. He was the Indian prince that later became the Buddha. So that's, that's who we're talking about there. Jesus was a strict monotheist and Gautama was not a monotheist. So Jesus was a first century Palestinian Jew that believed in one God who was ruler over everything and Buddha did not believe that. Okay. Number two, for Jesus, the root problem confronting humankind is sin, and for Gautama, it is ignorance, right? Jesus came to die for our sins, whereas in Buddhism, they don't have a concept of sin because there's no one ultimately to sin against. Does that make sense? It's just wrong desires and, and motives and ignorance. Third, the one creator God became incarnate in Jesus of Nazareth, Whereas Gautama was a human being who is said to have been the human manifestation of the Buddha essence or um, the Dharma. If you guys have seen Lost, how many of you followed the show Lost several years ago? All right, that great saga, uh, the Dharma project, that, that, that's a Buddhist concept or Buddhist word for the teaching or the doctrine. Like if we say Christian theology, they would say the Dharma is what the Buddha taught. Alright, number four, whereas Gautama presents his teachings and practices leading to enlightenment, Jesus does not merely teach the way to, to reconciliation with God. He himself is the way to salvation. You see, now, why would we cover something so basic as this? Believe it or not, there are people today who would say that Buddhism and Christianity can peacefully coexist side by side. Now, in one sense, we shouldn't kill Buddhists, right? It's, it's, not, it's not a physical war. It's a spiritual war. But those two concepts are absolutely and totally opposed to one another, even though some people may say that we believe that Buddha was a teacher and Jesus is a teacher. They both were for nonviolence, so let's just go ahead and have Buddha, Buddhist temple and Christian services together. And it can't happen for, for a number of reasons. So, uh, 
The essentials of Buddhism, and I think we got into some of this last week, but here's basically three. Uh, number one, to be a Buddhist is to take refuge in the three jewels. The first would be the Buddha, or the enlightened one. Number two, the Dharma, the teaching. And number three, the Sangha, or the community. In other words, if you are a Buddhist, this these are the three things that define your life. Okay. What do you think they mean when they say take refuge in these things? Those of you who were here last week. Having something to do with, with meditation, right? With trying to follow certain rules, like the Buddha laid out the eightfold path to enlightenment and so forth. So it's doing good things that the teacher told you to do. But um, who do we take refuge in? Jesus. Who is deity? Jesus is God. Now notice the difference here. Buddha does not believe in an ultimate God. So here he is just a supposed manifestation of a teaching. But we take refuge in the one who created everything. Not only that, uh, we also, as Christians, take refuge in the gospel. And the gospel goes totally against the Dharma. Because the Dharma says that if you follow these steps, you will achieve enlightenment. The gospel is... You could follow every step on the planet, but you'd still be in your sins. The gospel is that God came down to rescue us. He came down off the mountain, and he says there is no ladder that we have to climb up. And the number three, the community of Buddhists, they, they, they gain comfort from this. I think that we saw something that's far superior to that just a few moments ago, to our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ pray for each other, not only for physical needs, but also for people to be saved. And so, when you talk to Buddhists, it's good to understand these are things that they go to for comfort, but we understand as Christians, we go far deeper than that, right? We, we go to the one who brought everything into existence as opposed to uh, just certain aspects of it. So, here's the question, uh, what is nirvana? And we said last week, it's not the band. No good, all right. Uh, Literally, it means the blowing out of the flame of desire and the negation of suffering. Nirvana, this is Winfrey Corduan, says, it is not nothing or non-being, but neither is it anything that has being. It is beyond our categories of existence or thought. Now, we got into this last week, and I think a lot of us just kind of sat there and looked at it and didn't really know of a plausible response. Let's just stop for just a second if I told you that something was not nothing or non-being, but neither is it anything that has being, what would you probably call that? Maybe a fallacy? Like, like, yeah, like a contradiction in terms. Like, this is something, but it's not. It, it either it's something either exists or it does not exist in some sense. Okay, so I think that's a good a good point that you can talk to Buddhists with, and we'll get into some more of that, where you can actually counteract uh, the Buddhist claims. <clears throat> uh, we know that Buddha rejected the Hindu Vedas and the Upanishads, which would be like the Hindu scriptures, because they quote were of no help in finding the way to Nirvana. Buddha also denied that man has a soul or an Atman, which is part of the world's soul, and that this present world is unreal. So that's why uh, in Hinduism, they believe that all of this is an illusion. This is not real. Think of the matrix. The difference between the real and the unreal. 
Buddha broke from that and said, no, this world is real and suffering is real. It's not just an intellectual uh, plane or a state. So in that point, we could say, you know what? We can agree on this. The world is real, right? Like, amen, okay? That's where we can have an area of agreement where we can actually have dialogue uh, with a Buddhist. So here's the question that we got into like in the last 30 seconds of last week. What proof is there that the Buddha actually achieved enlightenment? If a, if, a, if a Buddhist sits you down and you're having lunch and they say, Buddhism is awesome, that'd be great if you could become one. Here's, here's, the, here's the card and the times and the dates to our Buddhist indoctrination, or I guess we could say initiation temple uh, ritual. And you asked, what proof is there that he... In, actually achieved enlightenment. Could there be an answer to that? How would they answer that? Who said he gained enlightenment? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There is, there is no measuring stick because it's simply, you know, truth is relative and there is no ultimate God. So if there's no ultimate God, there's no standard of right and wrong. But even more so, it's his word. And what is enlightenment? Well, we could say it very simply, it'd be like a state of mind. So somebody comes from underneath a tree and tells you, I, re- I achieved a certain state of mind, and therefore you should live your life according to that principle. Do I have any knowledge that they're not lying? No. I would think the resurrection of Jesus Christ would be a much more stable place to rest my faith. <clears throat> so the next question we could ask is, what proof is there that Jesus rose from the dead? We've got prophecy, right? The change in the disciples from hiding in an upper room uh, to going and setting the world on fire. Even the enemy testimony or enemy attestation. Even the enemies of Jesus said that there was an empty tomb. So all of that added together, I would think it would give us a much more uh, evidence case for believing in Christ than what Buddha said. So here's the question. Which is easier to claim? Achieving a state of mind or being physically raised from the dead? Yeah, that's one of those questions like, I'm not even going to have to answer that verbally. Yeah, achieving a state of mind. If I say that that's what I did, they're like, okay, well, you did or you didn't. But if you're like, hey, guys, I'm the son of God. You guys know about me. But I'm going to be killed here not too long, be dead for three days, and then come back from the dead physically. And everybody's like, you're crazy. And that's what most of the people said about Jesus in a matter of speaking. But then when Jesus shows back up as the risen Lord over death, that's what changed the disciples, changed the whole world uh, even today. So anyone can can claim to achieve a state of mind. Uh, it is non-verifiable, but an empty tomb is verifiable. You can evidence that. So this is very powerful when you're talking to especially American converts to Buddhism because they do have a strong desire, or I guess an aptitude for evidence that some other cultures may not have. So, when Buddhists talk about suffering, they say that life itself is suffering, and life is a cycle. And Ben, you and I have had conversations about that, about Eastern religions. Most Eastern religions say that, that life is cyclical, it's just a circle. Whereas, the Bible broke from that, and God says, here is a point of beginning... And here is history, and there's going to be a point which I send my son into the world, and he's going to die for the sins of the world, and then after that, there's going to be the church age, and I'm going to come back, you see. There's a linear progression. But if 
think about this. If life is simply a cycle, and yet suffering is a continuation of something that happened further back in the cycle, then what factors were present when the cycle began? Where did suffering originate? Another question we could ask is, uh, did one act set in motion the wheels of suffering? You see, if you've got a cycle, and it's all predicated on what happened further back in the cycle, then it's self-defeating because it simply goes around and around and around and around and around, right? It's logically self-defeating. So, we could ask this. If humanity is the cause of suffering... Right? Because they say that suffering came into the world or is in the world because of our desires for things. Then, can humanity really be the cure? Because according to Buddhism, how do you rid the world of evil? By ridding yourself of desire. How do you do that? You follow the Eightfold Path, you meditate, so forth and so on. So in other words, the problem is with people, but the solution is also coming from people. Now let's kind of jump out of the philosophy realm and let's just talk about a real world scenario. Given the history of mankind and given the present state of the world, how much confidence do you have in people to solve the problems of the world? I mean, I don't know. Maybe let, maybe back in 2008, the yes we can thing, a lot of people jumped on that bandwagon and we're seeing how that's turning out. We can look back at, you know, the communist revolution in 1917 and the, you know, all of that and, you know, from each according to his ability to each according to his need, that whole world of insanity that thought that people were basically good, right? That if you change society, then the society would be fine instead of saying changing the human heart. So here's the thing. Buddhism would even say it like everyone is in a pit, right? We're in this pit of, of suffering. Well, if everybody's in the pit, then where is your deliverance going to come from? I just, I just take gander, to use an old school term, and say that deliverance would need to come from outside the pit. So here's the question. Who is outside the pit of human existence and suffering? Well, in Buddhism, who does not exist? God. And the only thing that would be higher than a person is, is a, a, a Buddha or, some, or a person who has progressed to a certain state. Well, then you're still just appealing to people to pull you out of the pit. So since suffering is real, then deliverance must also come from something or someone real. Thus, the best explanation would be deliverance from the pit of suffering by a person But we know that people are fallen, so it would have to be more than a person. It must be what the Bible calls a Messiah or a Savior. You see, right here, Jesus once again trumps world religions. That's why it's something I think we can get, we can get used to. The fact that it's, hopefully I tried to break it down on Sunday and ask God to give me grace to do that. But the incarnation of Jesus coming as one of us, That solves so many theological and philosophical problems that he suffered like we did, yet he was the perfect payment for God's wrath and he suffered to pay for our sin. So here's the the question. How can teachings or doctrines that have no connection to a living entity provide deliverance from suffering? In other words, mere teachings can only suffice only if suffering is an intellectual issue. You see... That's where Buddhism goes wrong. 
in, in one of the major areas. Because they say that in order to, to, to eliminate suffering, it has to be a mental thing. Well, well, suffering is not just a mental thing. It's something of the heart and of the soul and of the body. And we looked at on Sunday, what type of suffering did Jesus endure? Jesus endured mental suffering. He endured physical suffering. He endured emotional abuse. He endured all of these things so that every scope of human suffering, Jesus has endured that so that, as Hebrews 2 says, he may be a merciful and a faithful high priest. And before we go to the next slide, I'll just say, study of world religions, um, the more that I learn with this stuff, and the more it makes me thankful of Jesus. All right? The more it makes me thankful of who he is and what he's done. So here's, here's just a, a, a little um, snippet of what Buddha taught in regards to how we should address truth. He says, believe nothing because a wise man said it. Believe nothing because it is generally held as true. Believe nothing because it is written. Believe nothing because it is said to be divine. Believe nothing because someone else believes it. Believe only what you judge yourself to be true. Very, very interesting. So in truth and Buddhism, they believe that truth comes from within. Okay? So, so truth is looking inside oneself. And those of us who have been saved, what do most of us see when we look deep inside to the inner me? Sin, okay. Alright? Anybody else? That's kind of what you have seen, right? Here's the deceptiveness of religion. Religion can t- tries to tell you that you can look inside and try to find answers. You know what we find when we look inside? We find, at least I do, problems, sin, sins of commission and sins of omission. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came, as it says in, uh, was it Romans 2? We've been over this a lot of times, that that God has put the law, right? The law in our heart, um, so that our conscience understands our thoughts either accusing or excusing us. So God has that witness from within, uh, knowing Knowing right and wrong. So truth in Buddhism is not a person. Where That's very interesting that Jesus says, I teach the truth, I teach the way, I, I teach about life. Is that what he said? I am. Now that, that that's such an, I think, a, a verse that we almost overuse to the point of, of losing its meaning. But if you think about this, that truth, according to Jesus, is a person... I am the truth. That means that Jesus is the embodiment of truth. He's the illustration of truth. If I want to look at ethics, like how should I live my life? I look at what Jesus did and what Jesus taught. That truth is a person. But within Buddhism, it's just a concept. And here's where it gets really scary. If no God exists, then where's your standard for truth? Within... Alright? Y'all tell me, if we apply this universally, if this is our official teaching for all humanity, look within for truth, what type of responses do you think we would get outside of the halls of academia and the social clubs of nice, upstanding citizens? What's that? Absolutely. Absolutely. There would be mass chaos because... This makes me happy. 
I enjoy taking things that are not mine. I enjoy whatever it may be. And that's what you would get because we know that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things who can know it. Uh, number three, truth is subjective. There is no objective standard. That's what Buddha said. We looked at this last week. Be lights unto yourselves. So here's, here's the question. How would such a view of truth affect ethical decisions? I think we, Jonathan kind of hit it on the head. Chaos as far as society is concerned. But what if you really did believe that truth is something that you find when you look within. How would that affect how you make ethical decisions, right and wrong decisions in your life? I just make decisions based on anything I want. Yes. Because where are you supposed to look for truth? Me. That's a great way to put it. Me. Yeah. And... Obviously, Buddhism denies that we're fallen and we're depraved and we're sinful, but I think they're wrong, alright? I'm just gonna take a wide step and say that they're wrong, you know, call me crazy, but that we've got a problem in the human race. And I know as far as me, y'all remember growing up, right? The last piece of pie, okay? Things like that, the selfishness that, that's shown from little kids, that's my toy, one of the first words a lot of kids learn is mine, right? A lot of kids think their name is no, right, parents? Because that's all you tell them, you know, when they, no, no, no. But here's the thing. If I can look within and for truth and for, for ethics, I'm probably going to end up finding the truth that justifies Jeff and tells me that I'm right, whereas God's law, if I'm honest, it says most of the time you're wrong and you need to change. So <clears throat> here's a, a statement that they make about Buddha. Homage to him, the exalted and worthy and fully enlightened one. Do no evil to cultivate good, to purify one's mind. This is the teaching of the Buddhas. Now, I was in San Francisco uh, a few years ago, a friend's wedding out in California, and we, we went over there, Helene, to, to check out the city, and it was, it was amazing. There, were a lot, there was actually a Buddhist temple that we walked by. They had a lot of these, uh, I guess, these, these proverbs, these Buddhist proverbs written on the side of the building, but... If you read something like this, or if a Buddhist quoted something like this, here's our question. How could you use this Buddhist belief, such as do no evil and so forth, how could you use that as a springboard for the gospel? I say the point of my life is to purify my mind, cultivate good, and to do no evil. How could you use that to springboard into the gospel? Good. Good. Yeah. Absolutely. Good. The standard, right? Yep. If I'm supposed to look inside myself for truth, then is there really any evil to begin with? Oh. Watch out. We'll actually get to that in just a second, CJ. But good good job. He's he's ahead of us. Um any anything else come come to mind in regards to this? How how do you how, let, let, let's transition that how do you think someone from the South, just an average Southern American, right? We can just go the full scope. Uh huh. We cannot do that on our own. And why can't we do that on our own? You see, absolutely. You guys see how much of this continually comes back to origins? What are we? If no God exists, then this may be possible. I mean, maybe there is this state of mind, this thing that we can achieve. But if the God of the Bible exists and he did create us and our 
forefathers, Adam and Eve, fell and sin has infected the human race since then, if that's the case, and we're actually sinful like Lee's saying, falling people, then this stuff, sure it may be good in theory, but it can never be done. Let's ask, ask this. Um, what about past mistakes? Buddhism says that we can you know, transcend that. But, but seriously, if there is no payment for those past mistakes, we know deep down in our hearts that there is no peace. But if we know that we have been washed clean by the blood of Christ and have been forgiven of all sins, past, present, and future, and it is by the blood of Jesus that cleanses from all sins, we can have a clear conscience and lay our head on our pillow at night knowing that, you know what? If it were not for Jesus, I would be crushed by this weight of guilt. But because of Jesus, He has made me free. So that's that's where Buddhism and Christianity collide um, heavily. So we've got... Two and a half minutes to knock out these last two points. But here's the point of life in Buddhism. We'll probably have to end here. The point of Buddhism is simply in your life, the point of your life is reaching enlightenment. So the question, how does one reach enlightenment? It is following the Eightfold Path, which a large part of that involves simply personal meditation. Getting alone, sitting down, meditating. Now, I think this is a fascinating discussion that we probably don't have time for. We're going to try to hit it on the head and get as much as we can. But here's the question. What differences would you expect in a life dedicated to enlightenment or reaching enlightenment versus a life dedicated to gospel-centered evangelism? Yes. Yes. Now, here's, here's the thing. When we think about enlightenment, this to me, when I studied this a few years ago, was mind-blowing. The fact that for a Buddhist, the goal of your life is to reach a mental state. How do I do that? I go within myself. What Sue just said is one is selfish, one is other-centered. The gospel, Jesus says in Luke 9, in one of those, one of those foundational texts, that to, to save your life is to, is to what? Yeah, yeah, to to save my life is to lose it, but to lose my life for the gospel is to is, is to save it. You see, the gospel says the way that you truly find the point of your life is, I guess, in one sense, sure you can look in and you see all the messed upness. Jesus comes and changes that, and then we're going to hopefully break this down on Sunday. Y'all pray. I know this is going to be Memorial Day. It's a bad time to wrap up a series, but I hope that God brings freedom to a lot of our people in regards to suffering. Because I truly believe the way that you break past those brutal things that have happened in life is you throw yourself into serving and loving other people. It's psychologically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, every aspect of the human body or the human makeup, it is what God designs. Here's the thing. Um, I guess we can answer it like this. One is profoundly self-centered. Sue, did you hack into the notes this afternoon? Okay, because you hit it on the head. All right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, the other is profoundly evangelism, God-focused, grace-driven, and other-centered. You see, this is how the freedom of the Christian life can even sustain us during suffering. Even in suffering, our focus is towards God, and our focus to serve other people is not so that we can selfishly get to a place called heaven. But it is because God has given us grace to serve people that we do want to serve people. So in that, they'll glorify God and God will be glorified in us. And so I think we're going to have to stop right here, maybe pick up some of this 
uh, the week after next. But y'all, I'm hoping that this study in world religions will help us simply, number one, be prepared to give an answer to those people that are in spiritual darkness. And secondly, just for a personal, collective benefit, make us more thankful for Jesus. That we are not stumbling around in the dark clinging to these three jewels of this man 2,500 years ago who claimed to reach a, a certain state of mind and that we're not simply following what he we think he taught and we don't just have this random collection of people trying to gain this thing called enlightenment, but God has given us a global plan. He's given us a body of believers and a faith family that is there with you through thick and thin. So... Um, in August, just giving you guys a heads up, and throughout the summer uh, we're going to cover Islam for a couple of weeks, and then we're going to cover Buddhism and some other religions, but then towards the end of the summer we're going to get into Jehovah's Witnesses, we're going to get into uh, Mormons, because I think honestly we deal with a lot more of that uh, than we do with Buddhists coming door to door and so forth, but just be in prayer for that, and hopefully we'll put out the word, because most of the uh, Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses, most of their converts are people who are formerly in Southern Baptist churches, Bible churches, things of that nature. And so we need to be prepared to know uh, the truth. So let's, uh, let's do that together.